When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Hit Parade, a podcast of pop chart history from Slate Magazine about the hits from coast to coast. I'm Chris Melanfi, chart analyst, pop critic, and writer of Slate's Why Is This Song Number One series. On our last episode, it's the 50th anniversary of 1971, which has been called one of the greatest years in music history. On the Billboard charts, pop, rock, and soul legends were scoring both number one singles and number one albums, including, so far, George Harrison, Janis Joplin, and the Rolling Stones. We're up to the summer of 71, when the year's biggest hitmaker was about to take her turn on top. As I've said so many times in this podcast, timing is everything when it comes to hitmaking. Consider this cover of a well-known song, performed by its original songwriter. When this old world starts getting me down And people are just too much for me to face That's Carol King with Up on the Roof, a song she and lyricist Jerry Goffin originally wrote in 1962. And this version appeared on Writer, King's largely ignored debut album as a recording artist. Upon its release in 1970, the Writer LP didn't chart even though it uses some of the same approaches as the album that would make King a legend just one year later. Soulful singing, warm piano, a 60s song reinterpreted for the 70s. Somehow, the world wasn't quite ready for Carole King, recording artist, who was trying to come out from under the shadow of Carole King, songwriter. That Carole King had been very successful. I climbed way up to the top of the stair, and all my cares just drift right into Drifter's original version of Up on the Roof was a number five pop, number two R&B hit in 1962, and it wasn't even the biggest song penned by Carole King and Jerry Goffin. The songwriting team and then-married couple wrote for and from the famed Brill Building at 1650 Broadway in New York City. King, born Carol Klein in Manhattan, was the melody writer and Goffin the lyricist for a string of singles from a range of artists. 
As I noted in our pilot episode of Hit Parade when discussing the career of songwriter-performer Neil Diamond, the Brill Building hosted dozens of writers, often in pairs, from Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller, to Ellie Greenwich and Jeff Barry, to Burt Bacharach and Hal David. Jerry Goffin and Carol King, in particular, ranked among the building's most successful two-person hit factories, able to channel youthful emotions into sophisticated pop singles for everyone from R&B girl group The Shirelles to teen idol Bobby V. Take good care of my baby. To Little Eva, Goffin and King's babysitter, for whom they wrote the instructional dance song The Locomotion. All three of these singles were Hot 100 number ones. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. In these early days, Carol King would occasionally record one of her and Goffin's tracks herself. One of those compositions, It Might As Well Rain Until September, originally intended as a demo for Bobby V, wound up a hit for King, peaking at number 22 on the Hot 100 in 1962. But at the time, September seemed like a fluke. King's voice was an odd fit for the girl group and teen idol era of the early 60s, and attempts to promote her as a frontline act quickly fizzled. A follow-up single, He's a Bad Boy, stalled at number 94 in 1963. He's a bad boy, but I don't care. However, right through the late 60s, Jerry Goffin and Carole King kept turning out hits for other artists, including The Monkees, Another Pleasant Valley Sunday, and famously Aretha Franklin the very mature, self-actualizing 1967 hit You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman began as a title Atlantic Records president Jerry Wexler gave them, just the title, around which Goffin and King wrote a song that became an Aretha standard. By 1967, as Goffin and King's marriage was disintegrating, King moved out west. The move to L.A. introduced King to the scene in Laurel Canyon, the Hollywood Hills neighborhood that was a hotbed of the 60s rock counterculture and an instigator of the singer-songwriter movement. There, King befriended fellow songwriters Joni Mitchell, She's a lady of the 
James Taylor. Oh, I've seen fire and I've seen rain. Seen sunny days that I thought would never end. I've seen lonely times when I could not find a friend. Both Mitchell and Taylor would wind up playing and singing backup on King's follow-up to her well-reviewed but poor-selling writer album. And James Taylor provided specific inspiration. His 1970 single, Fire and Rain, was a big hit, number three on the Hot 100, just weeks before the January 1971 sessions for King's new album. Taylor's baleful lyric in the song, quote, I've seen lonely times when I could not find a friend, prompted King to write a response. You just out my name And you know wherever I am I'll come running The hopeful, reassuring You've Got a Friend was a milestone for Carol King, a song she wrote by herself post her partnership with Jerry Goffin that would become as big a standard as any Goffin King song. While King was recording her new album in L.A., James Taylor was simultaneously recording in another L.A. studio, and he decided to try recording his friend Carol's answer record himself. It would wind up appearing on both of their respective 1971 LPs. You just call up my name, and you know wherever I am. You've Got a Friend would become James Taylor's biggest hit, and somewhat ironically, his signature song, despite the fact that the singer songwriter didn't write it. This was the thing about the album Carole King would ultimately name Tapestry. Its songs were both distinctly Carole King's and adaptable to others. One up-tempo track, Smackwater Jack, was recorded later the same year by producer-arranger Quincy Jones. He even named his 1971 album Smackwater Jack. Another King album cut, Beautiful, sounded like an instant classic, later covered by everyone from Barbara Streisand to Anne Murray. Then people gonna treat you better, you're gonna find, yes you will, that you're beautiful. Conversely, elsewhere on the album, King took back a couple of the hits she and Goffin had penned for others and covered them herself, including the Shirelles' 1961 chart topper, Will You Love Me Tomorrow? But will you love me tomorrow? And Aretha Franklin's 1967 smash, A Natural Woman. Your love was the key to my 
But what set the tone for King's whole album was a pair of new songs that gave voice to female assertiveness in relationships. It's Too Late, written with lyricist Tony Stern, was a breakup lament with a subtly feminist point of view, chronicling the end of a relationship where the woman is the one moving on. Village Voice pop critic Bob Christgau wrote, quote, If there's a truer song about breaking up than It's Too Late, the world, or at least AM radio, isn't ready for it. Unquote. And it's too late, baby, now it's too late. Though we really did try to make it. Something inside has died and I can't hide and I just can't fake it. Oh. And the other song. I Feel the Earth Move, a piano-pounding barn burner that would wind up opening the album, was a rather frank ode to sexual gratification. All music critic Stuart Mason called the song, quote, the ultimate in hippie chick eroticism. I feel the earth move under my Too Late and I Feel the Earth Move were issued on both sides of the same single, King's first single to touch the Hot 100 since He's a Bad Boy in 1963. It's Too Late wound up the bigger hit with DJs and was designated the A-side, but both songs scored airplay and charted together. By the time the It's Too Late single hit the charts, Tapestry had been out a couple of months and was working its way up the album chart. Expectations for Carol King's second LP were modest, given that Writer had sold poorly. But the chart breakthrough of albums from Joni Mitchell and James Taylor since 1970 had opened the market to solo singer-songwriters. Now, Joni and James were no slouches when it came to writing catchy songs, but they had made their bones in the world of confessional folk. What made Carole King exceptional was her decade of experience in the world of commercial pop. At age 29, King was both a relatively new artist as a singer and a veteran as a songwriter and she knew how to deliver hits. Something inside has died and I can't hide and I just can't fake it. Oh, no, 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 On June 19th, 1971, in its 11th week on the Billboard Top LPs chart, Carol King's Tapestry knocked the Rolling Stones' sticky fingers out of number one. That same week, on the Hot 100, King's double-sided single, It's Too Late slash I Feel the Earth Move, also reached number one. The single stayed there for five weeks, into July. Then, two weeks after King's single departed the top spot, James Taylor's version of her song, You've Got a Friend, rose to number one. Winter, spring, summer, or fall all you got to do is call And I'll be there Yeah, yeah, yeah 
got a friend. Carole King dominated the summer of 1971. Her Tapestry album spent a stunning 15 consecutive weeks atop the album chart, the longest any LP had commanded the list since the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band in 1967. When Tapestry finally succumbed in September of 71, it had already generated another hit, The Heartfelt So Far Away, which peaked at number 14. But you're so far away Doesn't anybody stay in one place like Sgt. Pepper, generations of listeners have bought and consumed Tapestry since its release, giving it a string of chart records. It was the last album to spend that many weeks at number one until Fleetwood Mac's equally California-driven Rumors in 1977. Tapestry also once held the record for the longest run on the Billboard album chart, 302 consecutive weeks from April 1971 through January 1977. It took until 1980 for another album to beat Tapestry, Pink Floyd's The Dark Side of the Moon. And for a time, Tapestry, now certified at 13 times platinum, was the best-selling LP of all time. It was surpassed in 1978 by the Bee Gees-fronted Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. All of these artists, the Bee Gees, Pink Floyd, Fleetwood Mac, and of course, Carole King, were acts that launched their careers in the 60s but came into their own commercially in the 70s. That was also true of the singer who took over the top of 1971's charts as summer turned into fall. It's easy to forget now how rootsy this man's music sounded then, but his voice remains unmistakable. When the rain came, I thought you'd leave Cause I knew how much you love the sun. Roderick Davis Stewart thought he might want to be a footballer when he grew up, perhaps for his beloved Arsenal. He really was a good soccer player. But sometime in his teenage years, young Rod Stewart realized he was only any good at two things, football and singing, and the latter, he thought, would be easier to break into especially given the unique sound of his voice. This single, billed to Long John Baldry and the Hoochie Coochie Men, was the first to feature a 19-year-old Rod Stewart on vocals. That raspy husk would be Rod's ticket to fame, his trademark. The only question was what he would do with it. Stewart spent the 60s joining or recording with around a half dozen groups in a range of styles, including the Brian Auger Trinity, who in 1966 helped Rod 
fulfill his dream of recording a cover of his favorite singer, Sam Cooke. Or by 1967, the Jeff Beck group. Beck had just left the Yardbirds, and he put together a band to showcase his guitar playing. It also was a showcase for Rod Stewart, probably the hardest rocking material Rod ever sang. The Jeff Beck group's cover of the Yardbirds classic Shapes of Things bordered on proto-metal. Thanks to Jeff Beck's renown, the group's album reached an impressive number 15 on the American Album Chart in 1968, finally propelling Rod Stewart's career. He was now in demand, and by the end of the year, Stewart had signed a solo contract with Mercury Records. Around the same time, English band The Small Faces lost their vocalist and went looking for a new one. In 1969, Rod joined the rechristened Faces as their singer, even as he planned his solo debut. After all of this rough-and-tumble rock, the sound of Rod Stewart's 1969 debut album was fairly surprising. He instead leaned toward a rustic, acoustic-plus-electric sound, mixing folk and even country elements. The handbags and the glad rags that your granddad had to sweat so you could find. He refined the sound on 1970's Gasoline Alley. It was Stewart's first album to crack the top 40 on the Billboard album chart, where it peaked at number 27. As All Music's Stephen Thomas Erlewine aptly summarized, quote, instead of finding the folk in rock, he found how folk rocked like hell on its own. Solidly as Gasoline Alley did on the charts, it offered no hint that Rod was about to break big. A single from the Gasoline Alley album, Rod's rollicking cover of the Bobby Womack song It's All Over Now, made famous by the Rolling Stones, bubbled under the Hot 100 in July 1970 at number 126. released his third solo album, Every Picture Tells a Story, in May 1971, executives at his label, Mercury Records, were convinced that the hitbound track would be his cover of American folky Tim Harden's Reason to Believe. It is a sturdy song, and Stewart does do an excellent rendition. Still I look to find a reason to believe. 
However, Rod's Reason to Believe stalled at number 62 on the Hot 100 before radio DJs noticed the original folk rock tune sitting on the single's B-side. A rousing, wistful story song about a teenager learning about sex from an experienced older woman. Wake up, Maggie, I think I got something to say. Co-written by Rod Stewart himself, he based it on one of his own early sexual exploits, with British guitarist Martin Quittenden, the song seemed to define the cheeky Rod persona and combine the full range of his musical interests. It was folky and rocking and rustic and even came complete with a mandolin solo. Naming it after an old Liverpool folk song, they called it Maggie May. You stole my heart, and that's what really hurts. On the Hot 100 dated August 14, 1971, Maggie May appeared alongside Reason to Believe in the same chart position. One week later, the titles flipped, with Maggie May now regarded as the A-side. Six weeks later, Maggie May was number one on the Hot 100. That same week, Every Picture Tells a Story topped the LP chart. Both the album and the single stayed at number one more than a month. Fifty years later, this is still the most acclaimed period of Rod Stewart's career. He could, for a few years, seemingly do no wrong. Whether he was reuniting with the Faces for the boogie rocker Stay With Me, their biggest hit at number 17 in 1972, or recreating the Maggie Mae magic with his own follow-up solo single You Wear It Well a number 13 hit from his follow-up album, Never a Dull Moment. Every Picture Tells a Story still routinely makes greatest albums of all time lists, unlike all of Rod's dozens of other albums. In a backhanded compliment, Critics often compare whatever Stewart is releasing currently to Every Picture Tells a Story and find the new material lacking. They are quick to remind you that the man who later went disco in 1979 with this MTV Staple. Used to sound more like this. If nothing else, every picture tells a story flaunted Rod Stewart's versatility, and Maggie May established his star power and roguish persona. He may have peaked early, but he earned decades of goodwill. 
Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Dot com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. If there's one downside to the selection of 1971 chart toppers I've run down so far, it's a lack of racial diversity. From January through October on the album chart that year, no Black or Latinx acts reached number one. A pity, given the killer music then ruling R&B and Latin pop. But that changed in November and December of 71. All three albums that led the top LPs chart in the year's closing months were by artists of color. I'm going to focus on the two of these albums that also spawned a number one single. The run was kicked off by a man who came to call himself Black Moses. If the music makes you move, cause you can dig the groove, and groove on. 
By 1971, the 28-year-old Isaac Lee Hayes Jr. was already a recording industry veteran. Like Carole King, he'd made his bones as a songwriter first. In the mid-60s, working with producer-writer David Porter, Isaac Hayes co-wrote a string of hits for soul duo Sam and Dave, including Hold On, I'm Coming, When Something Is Wrong With My Baby, I Thank You, and The Deathless Soul Man. Hayes's years of session work for storied Memphis label Stax Records eventually gave him the opportunity to record under his own name. His 1969 Stax album Hot Buttered Soul is a landmark in the development of progressive soul and black rock. The LP has only four virtually jazz-length tracks that fill the LP's two sides such as Hayes's nearly 19-minute take on the Jimmy Webb song made famous by Glenn Campbell, By the Time I Get to Phoenix. By the time I get to Phoenix She'll be rising Hot Buttered Soul is also a treasure trove of raw sonic material for the later hip-hop era. Hayes's 12-minute version of the Burt Bacharach Hal David classic Walk On By, first recorded by Dionne Warwick, was turned by Hayes into a spooky, aching lament with a loping strut. Isaac Hayes's Walk On By has been sampled dozens of times by everyone from both Tupac and Biggie to the Wu-Tang Clan to trip-hop act Hoover Phonic to, just in the last decade, Beyonce. Six and she walked in a club like nobody's business. The languor of Hayes's recordings has made them a rich text for reinterpretation. A later track from his 1971 LP Black Moses, Ike's Rap 2. I knew that was wrong. You're the only one I can turn to. Became a foundational sample in trip hop when Portishead repurposed it for 1994's Glory Box. By the turn of the 70s, under his own name, Hayes had scored a handful of modest hit singles. In early 71, he had his biggest hit to date with his cover of the Jackson 5's then-recent hit, Never Can Say Goodbye. Hayes's version reached number 22 on the Hot 100 and number 5 on Hot Soul Singles. Tell me why is it so I never can say goodbye, no, no. 
Around the same time, in the spring of 71, filmmaker, actor, and composer Melvin Van Peebles released a movie, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, that helped define the film movement known as blaxploitation. From the jump, music was integral to blaxploitation. Van Peebles' film came with a score he composed himself, which was performed by the then-unknown band Earth, Wind & Fire. But the first blaxploitation movie that would become as famed for its soundtrack as for the film itself was Shaft a Gordon Parks-directed urban crime story that closely followed Sweetback. Isaac Hayes, who had actually auditioned for the part that ultimately went to star Richard Roundtree, pivoted to doing the movie's score instead. Given his history with expansive soul tracks, for Hayes, the irony of the Shaft score was that he was now composing much shorter, episodic instrumentals. Most of the tracks were two to four minutes long, but one of the slightly longer tracks was the four-and-a-half-minute theme from Shaft, which would open the movie as Detective John Shaft emerges from the subway onto a city street. Hayes completed that song last, and it summed up the whole aesthetic of the film. Steeped in wah-wah guitar, a funk trademark, riding a hi-hat rhythm suffused with tension, and laden with strings, woodwinds, and brass, theme from Shaft is all instrumental for nearly three minutes before Isaac Hayes starts singing, or really rapping, in the most literal sense of badass patter as rap. Who's the black private dick that's a sex machine to all the chicks? You're damn right. The vocals, punctuated by a female backing chorus, were kitsch, but knowingly so, with a coy wink. Only someone as confident as Isaac Hayes could get away with making this song more swaggery than silly. In a move that was rather advanced for 1971, Hayes edged up to the line of dropping one of George Carlin's seven dirty words. When Shaft, the movie, became a blockbuster in the summer of 1971, earning many times its half-million-dollar budget at the box office, theme from Shaft became more than film music. The album cut was played in clubs, and Stack's subsidiary Enterprise Records, which had released the soundtrack LP, was compelled to issue the track as a single. It was edited down to just over three minutes, though a nearly two-minute version of its long instrumental opening was left intact. And it was released in late September 1971. In just over a month, 
it was atop the Hot 100. Two weeks before that, the Shaft soundtrack also hit number one, knocking out John Lennon's Imagine album. This was already remarkable, a major commercial breakthrough for Isaac Hayes. But the truly extraordinary feat came five months later, at the 44th Academy Awards, where Theme from Shaft was nominated for the Best Original Song Oscar. The year before, this prize was won by the writers of this song, For All We Know, from the film Lovers and Other Strangers. It had been popularized in early 71 by brother-sister duo The Carpenters, who took it to number three. This was the type of poised, centrist pop song that typically took home the Oscar. At the 1972 Academy Awards celebrating 1971 films, a song associated with the Carpenters was again in the best original song race, Bless the Beasts and Children, from the film of the same name. But the star of that year's Oscars telecast was Isaac Hayes, who delivered one of the most memorable musical performances in Academy Awards history, even though he was mostly miming and lip-syncing. Hayes emerged from below the stage behind his keyboard, shrouded in smoke, wearing nothing on his upper torso but a lattice of chains and he performed amid an army of dancers swirling around him. Who's the black private dick that's a sex machine to all the cheeks? Later that night, actor Joel Gray announced that the winner of Best Original Song was Isaac Hayes, the sole credited songwriter on Theme from Shaft. Hayes became the first black composer to win an Academy Award, and the success of the Shaft soundtrack set a new bar for music in blaxploitation films. Later in 72, soul legend Curtis Mayfield upped the ante with his acclaimed soundtrack to Superfly, which followed in Shaft's footsteps by topping the LP chart. Oh, Superfly! As for Isaac Hayes, he continued to release acclaimed albums and even, eventually, act. He was one of the stars of the 1974 blaxploitation movie Three Tough Guys. The film, a very modest grocer, is better known today for its Isaac Hayes soundtrack. which continued to reverberate in hip-hop for decades afterward, most famously in the Ghetto Boys hit Mind Playing Tricks on Me. This year Halloween fell on a weekend Me and Ghetto Boys are trick-or-treating 
by the 90s, Hayes became best known to younger generations for his role as Jerome Chef McElroy on TV's South Park. Hayes had a good sense of humor about the role, since Chef is basically a satire of the badass loverman persona he invented circa Shaft. I'm gonna make love to you, woman. Gonna lay you down by the fire. A couple of years before he died in 2008, Isaac Hayes lived to see Memphis rap troupe Three Six Mafia take home the Best Original Song Academy Award for their track It's Hard Out Here for a Pimp from the film Hustle and Flow. Hayes's Oscars legacy had been officially passed down to the hip hop generation. Back in 1971, Isaac Hayes was atop the album chart for just one week before being replaced by Mexican-American guitarist Carlos Santana and his eponymous band. Their self-titled third LP, the first to feature eventual Journey founder Neil Schoen, is commonly known as Santana 3. As we discussed in our Hit Parade episode about the hitmakers spawned by the Woodstock Festival, the 1969 mega concert was instrumental in launching the career of Carlos Santana and introducing his fusion of Latin rhythms and furious guitar rock. As I also noted in that episode, Another legendary act whose reputation as live performers was made at Woodstock were Sly and the Family Stone. The big difference between Carlos Santana and Sylvester Stewart, aka Sly Stone, was that Santana had kept up a steady recording schedule after Woodstock. By 1971, Sly and his band hadn't put out any new studio albums since 69. That would finally change near the end of the year, when Sly and the Family Stone dropped the final double chart topper of 71. But it had been a long journey to get there. Right after Woodstock, Sly and the Family Stone issued the seasonally appropriate single Hot Fun in the Summertime. It quickly shot to number two on the Hot 100, reinforcing that Sly's band was now a potent commercial force in addition to their reputation as a fierce live act. He was on his own schedule, enjoying the spoils of his fame, picking up a massive drug habit and unbothered by the demands of the major label he and the Family Stone were signed to, Epic Records. In the next two years, literally the only material produced under the Sly and the Family Stone name was a two-sided single, 
the hard funk classic thank you for letting me be myself again Backed with the stately hippie soul anthem, Everybody is a Star. Everybody is a star. The double-sided hit shot to number one in early 1970. While Sly Stone sunk deep into his addictions, Epic Records stalled for time. First, they took advantage of the mid-1970 release of the Woodstock movie and its soundtrack by issuing the 1969 Family Stone track, I Want to Take You Higher, as a single. It made the top 40. They reissued the Family Stone's 1967 debut album, A Whole New Thing, with a new album cover. Then, just before the holidays of 1970, the label put together a Sly and the Family Stone Greatest Hits album. It was the first time fans could buy the group's loose singles, like Thank You, on an LP. Promoted like a new frontline album, a then-novel marketing strategy, Greatest Hits rose to number two on the Billboard album chart, much higher than such compilations typically did back then. To be fair to Sly Stone, he wasn't totally idle during all this time. He founded a vanity label, Stone Flower, affiliated with Atlantic Records. The label wasn't very productive, issuing only four singles total, but two of them cracked the top 40, both by the vocal group Little Sister, so named because member Vet Stewart was Sly Stewart's Little Sister. Their number 22 pop, number 4 R&B hit, You're the One, sounded like a would-be funk sequel to The Family Stone's Thank You for Letting Me Be Myself Again. For their follow-up single, Sly guided Little Sister toward a deep cut from the Family Stone's Stand album called Somebody's Watching You. Little Sister's version of the song, produced by Sly Stone, showed the direction his music was heading even in the absence of new Family Stone material. Sly built the track out of an early drum machine, then called a rhythm box. The Little Sister single peaked at number 32 on the Hot 100 and number 8 on the R&B chart in early 71, making it, by some estimations, the first popular recording to derive its rhythm from a drum machine. Somebody's watching you Somebody's watching you 
When Sly and the Family Stone finally announced a new studio album in late 71 and dropped its first single, it probably felt familiar to listeners who remembered the Little Sister single. One child grows up to be somebody that just loves to learn and another child This single was also built out of a rhythm box beat, along with deep funk guitar that sounded like it was recorded underwater because Sly had overdubbed the track so many times. Punctuated by an irresistible vocal from Rose Stone, Sly called this track Family Affair. Family Affair became Sly and the Family Stone's biggest hit since their early 68 chart topper, Everyday People, and it couldn't have sounded more different from that prior optimistic anthem. Family Affair rose to number one on the Hot 100 in just five weeks. Two weeks after that, there's a riot going on. Sly's visionary album of disillusionment and dark soul, featuring a red, white, and black American flag on its cover, also rose to number one on the album chart. It benefited from two-plus years of pent-up demand for new Sly Stone material. It soon produced a follow-up hit, the number 23 pop, number 15 R&B single, Runnin' Away selected by Epic as a single because it was one of the few tracks on the LP that sounded remotely upbeat. Sly and the Family Stone never returned to the pop top 10. Their last major hit, 1973's horn-inflected funk jam, If You Want Me To Stay, reached number three on the R&B chart and number 12 pop. If you want me to stay, I'll be around today to be available for you to see. But Sly Stone's only number one album cemented his legacy and inspired funk music for the next two decades. There's a Riot Going On continues to place highly on lists of the greatest albums of all time. During the holidays of 1971, the only album more dominant than Sly Stone's was Carole King's immediate follow-up to Tapestry, her LP Music, which we talked about in our ACDC Rule episode of Hit Parade. Though less well-remembered today, King's other 1971 album was rumored to have sold a positively gargantuan, Taylor Swift-like 1.3 million copies in its first day. Given the data lag on the Billboard charts, music didn't reach number one until just after Christmas, on a chart dated January 1st, 1972. And with that, the epic musical year of 1971 was over, appropriately with Carole King at number one. Which reminds me, before I sign off, 
I never explained what was so significant about that song Carole King and Jerry Goffin wrote that Donny Osmond took to number one in September 1971. Go away, little girl. Go away. Like so many of her future smash hits, Go Away Little Girl was recorded by Carol herself back in 1962. She and Goffin pitched it to Bobby V, the artist who took their song Take Good Care of My Baby to number one. V's version wasn't a hit, but as was typical of many brill-building songs, it got around, eventually finding its way to Steve Lawrence, the easy-listening singer, stage actor, and singing partner of wife Edie Gourmet. By the way, Steve of Steve and Edie fame is 86 and still with us. In January 1963, Go Away Little Girl became Steve Lawrence's only number one hit. I know that your lips are sweet, but our lips must never meet. I belong to someone else, and I must be true. Now, Go Away Little Girl was a little creepy when the fully grown Steve Lawrence sang it in 1963, and it was positively simpering when 13-year-old Donny Osmond covered it in 1971. Okay, Asha, that's enough. We don't need more of that. Thank you. Here's the big chart feat. When Donny Osmond took Go Away Little Girl back to number one, it became the first song to top the Hot 100 twice. First by Lawrence in 63, then by Osmond in 71. It was a remarkable chart benchmark, one that would later be duplicated by such two-time number ones as The Locomotion, Please Mr. Postman, Venus, Lean On Me, and Lady Marmalade. So, that's something. But okay, that still doesn't make Go Away Little Girl good. It's one of Goffin and King's lesser songs. You won't find too many defenders of Go Away Little Girl. My fellow chart columnist Tom Bryan, who writes the Number Ones series for Stereogum, gave both the Steve Lawrence and Donny Osmond versions a 1 on his 1 to 10 scale, the only song he gave that grade to twice. So why do I keep bringing this song up? Well, if you will indulge me, you happen to be listening to the 50th episode of Hit Parade. That's 50 full-length episodes, one a month, over the last four and a half years. It's a proud milestone for us. And speaking of milestones, if you are listening to this podcast about the semi-centennial of 1971 on the day we released it, Friday, September 10th, 2021, you are listening to it on my own, uh, well, semi-centennial. That's right, 
we're releasing our 50th Hit Parade episode on my Big Five O. It's my birthday present to me and to you, my loyal listeners. Thank you for getting us this far. In case you haven't figured it out yet, this means Donny Osmond's egregiously cheesy Go Away Little Girl is my personal birth week number one song. Now, I've been saying for years that it's a cruel fate that a guy as obsessed with the Billboard charts as I am, who loves to entertain friends looking up their birth week number one songs, was born under such a lousy chart topper. And I suppose the move right now would be to close our show playing that Donnie song again. But let's try something else. Our theme in this episode of Hit Parade has been that so many of the great hits of the year I was born originated in the 60s and were refined in 1971. Among those 60s hits was this one, written by Brill-building legends Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller. There is a road in Spanish Harlem That's Spanish Harlem, first recorded by Ben E. King, who took it to number 10 in early 1961. This acclaimed recording routinely makes lists of the greatest singles of all time. And it just so happens that this week in 1971, this version by another great vocalist was number two on the Hot 100. That, of course, is Ms. Aretha Franklin. Her Spanish Harlem is yet another classic released in 1971, a year that was, well, formative in my life. So humor me on my birthday, would you? Let's pretend that the week I was born, America wasn't obsessed with a squeaky-voiced teen idol from Ogden, Utah, and that, instead, the hit parade was commanded by the Queen of Soul. If you don't mind, this is how I'd prefer to remember this day. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Hit Parade. Our show was written, edited, and narrated by Chris Melanthi. That's me. My producer is Asha Saluja. Asha is also my producer for our monthly Hit Parade The Bridge shows, available exclusively to Slate Plus members. In our latest Bridge episode, critic Ann Powers and I go deeper into the hitmakers of 1971, from Janice to Joni, Carol to Keith. To sign up for Slate Plus and hear that show and all our shows the day they drop, visit slate.com slash hitparadeplus. June Thomas is the senior managing producer and Gabriel Roth, the editorial director of Slate Podcasts. Check out their roster of shows at slate.com slash podcasts. You can subscribe to Hit Parade wherever you get your podcasts, in addition to finding it in the Slate Culture feed. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to leading the hit parade back your way. Until then, keep on marching on the one. 
I'm Chris Melanfi. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.